Let me invite you to take your Bibles and uh, go over to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses uh, 8 to uh, 15 will be our scripture reading this morning, and uh, then we'll uh, dig into the text today and continue our study. So 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15 is our our scripture reading today. Why don't you follow along in your copy of God's Word? Perhaps you've got a copy of the sermon notes you can follow there too. So here's what it says. 1 Timothy 2.8 I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for its impact and its importance. And this text speaks clearly to our lives and does so in a way that is hard to really understand. And so we're asking for you to give us wisdom and understanding. I pray specifically, God, that you'd help me to explain this passage in a way that is clear and understandable. Help our people to know what um, is in this passage so that we can then live. And we want you to be our teacher today so we can respond as godly men and women in the midst of a culture that needs to see the gospel platformed through our unique expressions embedded in our maleness and our femaleness. And so help us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So every church in every culture, in every area, and in every time period has always been comprised of two kinds of people, men and women. Now, that may seem like an obvious statement. You may look at this and go, yeah, duh, that just totally makes sense. I mean, that's not anything new. But it's important to start there because uh, reality is, is from the very beginning of time, every church has had this men and women dynamic in the context of the church ministry. And so the church from the very beginning of time has had to figure out ways in which men and women express their unique God-given abilities, their talents. And how does this work in the context of the body of Christ? It's an important issue and one that the church has been wrestling with for, for years. Uh, today we're taking up this, um, this subject of what men and women are to do or not do, and there's a, there's a challenge here. The, the challenge is, is that within the boundaries of what it means for the church to be church, there are elements of continuity and discontinuity when you think of time periods and what the Bible says and There are some things that just transfer right over from culture to culture, from time to time, and from place to place. And there are other things that 
would be characterized with discontinuity. Depending on the environment, depending on the church, depending on the time era, you would conduct church differently. Men and women might do different things. They would dress differently. They'd act differently. They maybe have different sorts of roles. When it comes to um, a church, there are different cultures. There's different time periods that all inform how we look at this. The important thing is to look at the text and to figure out what is a universal command What are things that are commanded in the Bible that we are to do regardless of time and context? And then there's other things that are cultural context that we have to figure out, okay, well, don't really obey it this way now. We obey it this way now. And that's really important. And frankly, it's not an easy task to figure out how you make that distinction. Today we come to verses 11 to 15. And there are a number of really challenging questions that are in this passage. Let me just lay them on the table for us to consider. First, what does it mean for a woman to learn quietly with all submissiveness? Secondly, what does it mean for a woman not to teach or have authority over a man? What is, what's Paul saying? Third, when he refers to Adam being formed first, is Paul saying in this text that women are more easily deceived than men? And, and what in the world does it mean that a woman is saved through childbearing? I mean, those are challenging questions. Now, for the record, if this is your first Sunday here, we don't always tackle these sorts of issues. So, although I will tell you, we always do tackle the Bible, and when we go through a book, we run into hard passages. And so we get after this kind of passage, and we hope that you'll come back next week to see how we handle 1 Timothy 3 and the qualifications for elders. Well, as you can see, though, these questions and just raising them, Honestly, it's just not that easy to address these particular e- these issues. They're not easy to think about and to deal with. And so what I'm hoping to, to do today is to um, help you understand how I see this text and then also to help you see why I see it that way and then draw some conclusions. I hope to leave you as you're, uh, today as you're walking out with a clear sense of what I'm saying. You may not agree with what I'm saying, but I don't want you walking out here wondering what I was saying. So you may not agree, but at least hopefully there's a level of clarity. So again, this is the second week in this passage. And last week we looked at verses 8 through 10. And let me just review with you this idea of command and context that we looked at last week. Because I think that this idea of command and context is a very helpful interpretive key when you look at these verses. And what I mean by this is that whenever you're studying the Bible, you have to decide what are things that transcend culture in terms of commands. For instance, when the Bible says you shall not kill, clearly that's a command that transcends culture. It's been a, a long-standing command of how God wants life to be. So that there are things in the Bible that are clear commands in, in the Scriptures. Then there are other things that appear to have contextual outworkings of them. In other words, Paul or Peter or another author of the New Testament in particular is speaking to a particular culture, and therefore you might take what he says in that culture and then reapply it in a different way in our culture. For instance, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about women wearing head coverings, or he talks about how slaves should conduct themselves with their masters. And you need to take those things and figure out what was going on in culture and then transport the concepts into our present day and then make applications. And so understanding this lens or this rubrics through which we would see the scriptures is really important. By command, I mean a principle that transfers over from one generation, one time period to another. And by context, I mean that there might be cultural applications, how you work out a passage that would have similar meaning as it did in Paul's day, but would have different nuances in terms of how you actually live that out. Now, last week we saw this in verse 8. 
in that the command was that men should pray without anger and quarreling. That was the command. The principle, men pray without anger and quarreling, meaning don't have a bitter heart when you come to the Lord in prayer. But Paul also says that men should lift holy hands. And the the lifting of the hands I took to mean a cultural context. In other words, God would not be pleased if men prayed with grumbling hearts, but their hands were down. The point is, is dressing the heart or the attitude. Then we saw this lived out in verses 9 and 10, where the, again, command context paradigm shows up in reference to women. That women, here's the command, should dress respectively, modestly, and with self-control. That's the overarching principle. And then the context of it, Paul says, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire. As we saw last week, those things, that that gold, pearls, and costly attire and braided hair thing was a marker for something else in their culture. And so Paul takes the command about dressing modestly, and then he gives a context with a very specific thing. And so in our case, we need to take the command, women, about dressing modestly, and then figure out what in our own culture is the marker of immodesty. So therefore, this command context piece becomes really important and, I think, becomes a clarifying interpretive tool for us to see what the author, in this case Paul, is actually saying. So, it seems that there are clearly some things that transfer over and some that do not. Verses 8 through 10, candidly, are much easier because the teaching is more straightforward and the cultural lines are more obvious. Today... We're looking at a more challenging set of verses, verses 11 to 15, which is why some of you came back to church today to see how in the world we're going to handle this. (laughs) Welcome. Hope you come back again. So, the command context dynamic is seen also in verses 11 and 12. And I want to show you this. I want to walk you through uh, this passage and see how to distinguish between the command and context dynamic. Now, Admittedly, some interpreters don't see any command whatsoever in these verses. They, they think that, 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 that everything here is all about context. They would look at Ephesus, what was going on in the culture, and they would use the Ephesian culture to say, this passage really doesn't even apply to what we're dealing with today. Or there's others who don't see any context, and all they see is command. So everything in these verses is absolutely applicable today. And the challenge is, is that we're, we're moving through clearly in the previous two or three verses, a command context, command context paradigm, and then all of a sudden does that just stop? And my answer would be no, it doesn't. But I think a better solution, rather than saying it's all context or all command, is to say, hey, in these verses, there's both. Now that makes it a little more difficult and a little more challenging, but I think that helps. It doesn't solve all the problems, but I, I think it is a bit more interpretively consistent. So, verse 11 begins with a command. Look at it. It says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, most of us would tend to look towards quietly and submissiveness and miss the actual first command. The first command in the text is this, let a woman learn. Now, this is really important to identify at the front end because in Roman and Jewish culture during that time, women were considered intellectually and academically inferior to men. In fact, the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmud, they were, the Talmud was a collection of commentaries or thoughts on what the scripture said. It had some, frankly, pretty outrageous things that were in there about women. Listen, for instance, um, the Babylonian Talmud said this, the men came to learn, the women came to hear. Or the Jerusalem Talmud said it would be better for the words of Torah to be burned than that they should be entrusted to a woman. 
So, what's going on here is that Paul is elevating the role of women significantly. He's actually issuing a command that women should learn. This is very important because Paul is addressing not only the needs of men spiritually, but he's specifically addressing the needs of these women to grow in the grace of our Lord and that they ought to be learning and growing spiritually. And what he does here is he issues a countercultural command that in his day would have no doubt been received with a little bit of, whoo, wow, that's different. This is important because he's talking about something that would be different than the cultural norm. He's elevating the role of women. And so while you might read this passage and at first understandably think, man, this is kind of a male chauvinistic passage, what I need you to understand is that while this passage does identify, in my view, some differences between men and women, it begins with an elevation, a countercultural elevation of the role of women in the church. Women are not viewed as intellectually or academically or spiritually inferior to men. On the contrary, as I said last week, men and women share some very wonderful and important things in common. For instance, we are both made in the image of God. We are both, both genders fell into sin. Both receive forgiveness through Christ. Both men and women are spiritually gifted by the Holy Spirit. I don't have any more Holy Spirit than what a woman does. We both have all of the beautiful realities of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. So he says, let a woman learn. The next statement identifies the attitude or the actions with which women should learn. And this is what we turn our attention now. He says that she is to learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now here's where I see the command context paradigm begin to come online. Here's how I understand this passage. When he says to learn quietly with all submissiveness, the word submissive is the command. It reflects the way in which she is to learn, the spirit, the um, attitude, the demeanor with which she is to approach her learning. So he says with all submissiveness. I take that as the overarching command. And I take quietly, or some translations render with silence, that is the context Meaning that that word has cultural flexibility to it. And you understand this. If we took this passage absolutely literally, could you imagine the sign that we would have in front of our church? Welcome to College Park Church, no talking women. I mean, could you imagine? If we took that passage absolutely literally, that's what you might interpret it to say. So we already understand, just intuitively, that he doesn't mean just absolute silence. So we're already interpretively adjusting what that word means. That he means a quiet demeanor. So, let's begin with the word submission. What does the word submission mean? The word submission means to line up under. It means to recognize the place of a person or group of people who have been given divinely authorized authority. The word is used throughout the New Testament, not just for women. Submission is a way that a believer is to conduct him or herself to multiple kinds of relationships. For instance, um, Submission describes the kind of relationship that we should have with governing authorities. Romans 13. So if you get pulled over by a police officer on your way home today, beyond the fact that you've just sinned egregiously, when you're sitting there, you you need to be respectful because he's in a position or she's in a position of God-given authority. Secondly, we find that um, the word submission is used in regards to children and their parents. Children are to learn how to be submissive. 
Slaves are told to be submissive to their masters. And here's another example where we take contextualization and we say, well, slavery was part of their culture, but it's not anymore. So now we apply it to employees and employers. So that's where we take the cultural piece. And as, as well, young people are told to be submissive to their elders or those who are older than them, not just spiritual elders. So submission is commanded in multiple different kinds of relationship scenarios, regardless if it's men or women. Yet, submission is a particular command for women. And it seems that the spirit of submission is a very important theme that a godly woman should emulate as a part of her righteousness. It is a hallmark, if you will, of godly women. doesn't mean that only women should be submissive, but it does mean that godly women are uniquely submissive in how they live this out. This instruction about submissiveness as it relates to women is not just found in this text. It's found in multiple places throughout the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. 1 Timothy 2.5. The text says that women are to be submissive to their own husbands so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. In other words, there's something really off about what happens when women become non-submissive to their husbands. It says something about even the very word of God according to that text. Colossians 3.18, wives are to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Um, Ephesians 5.22, wives are to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. And 1 Peter 3 says wives are to be submissive to their husbands and let their beauty be a gentle and quiet spirit as holy women have given them an example in the past. So when I look at the word submission, there is no other group in the Bible, no other people group, no other particular collection of folks who are given this level of instruction regarding the command of submissiveness. Therefore, my conclusion is that while all believers are called to submission, there is a particular place in God's plan for divine function and order, and a particular place in what it means to express godliness for women to uniquely display this beautiful, godly trait. This submission is to be the unique hallmark of their lives, a unique, although not exclusive, but a unique expression of their godliness. A woman is to have a submissive attitude and heart. And I see this command, this submission command, as the overarching principle that is embedded within this text. Well, that then raises a very important question. So what does submission look like? And that's where I think we get into the contextual issues. Of You've got to figure out how it is to work out submission in your life. Submission may not look the same in every marriage. Submission may not look the same in every culture, in every era, and in every church. And this is really important because some people taking this passage and their own understanding of how submission works out in their home, they attach how they do submission or how submission should work in their house, and then they transport that and import that onto other people. So you've got to figure out what submission looks like in your home. It would look different than how it looks in my home because you have different personalities. Different strengths, different weaknesses. For instance, I was doing a, a teaching session with some young men about how to be a, an intentional um, spiritual leader in their home regarding a number of things, including just thinking through where is your family headed. We started talking about planning and, and, and thinking about where are we going. And one of the husbands was just 
kind of frustrated. He said, see, that's the problem. I'm a terrible planner and my wife's really good at it. So I try and she shows up and it's like, why am I even doing this? And I said to him, then why are you? Why not let her do it? And he said, I said, so you set the time, you set the meeting, say, hey, we're going to plan, and you come with all of your God-given gifts, and you just sit there and watch her do her thing, and at the end of the day, you'll develop a great plan. It'll be even better because your wife's so much better at it than you are. And in his mind and heart, and in many people's hearts, that's not spiritual leadership. Yes, it is. Here's another example. Some of you would equate spiritual submission with where you sit in the car. Seriously, if your friend shows up, your family and they, the friend, uh, folks that you're friends with, and they drive into church and you see his wife driving that car and he's in the passenger seat, some of you will say, uh-huh, we know who's wearing the pants in that family. <laughs> what if she's a better driver, right? What if everybody in the home knows, yeah, we're a lot safer with mom there, dad, get out. I mean, a, a God-honoring leader would say, that's right, you drive. And yet we equate submissiveness with some really interesting things, don't we? So... What I'm telling you is this. The cultural context of how you live out submission, it's not always black and white. The ideal is, but how you do it isn't. And so the challenge is to figure out how you should live it, live it out. As well, and let me just be candid, there have been some that have used, unfortunately, the Bible as a means of keeping women in abusive relationships. So say you're not a submissive wife if you're standing up for your rights, so to speak, and you should take all of this abuse as a submissive wife. And and candidly, there needs to be some careful thought that that's not what this text means. That's not what submissiveness is. So you have to figure out how to be able to live this out and realize that there's an overarching principle. Now, it's expressed in the word quietly. The text says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So again, just to review, I think submissive is the overarching principle, and then quietly is the context where you got to figure out, so what does this look like? What does it mean to be quiet? What does it mean to have a quiet demeanor? In fact, this word literally means silence. And then sometimes in the Bible, it's translated as total silence. Is that what it means? You can never say anything? Um, another way to see it is a quiet demeanor. And most contemporary translations render it as a quiet demeanor or render it as quietly rather than total silence or even using the word silence. In fact, interestingly enough, contemporary translations render the word quietly, whereas older ones rendered it as silence. King James, New King James, uh, uh, Revised Standard Version, New Revised Standard Version. And could it be, because the older translations viewed in context of their own culture, silence to be the better word. And now we've understood, well, that doesn't really work in our present culture. And every interpreter, every translator does this. So I don't think that the word can mean complete silence for a number of reasons. I think quiet demeanor is better. Here's a couple reasons why. First, total silence for women was not the norm in church worship services. For instance, 1 Corinthians 11.5 indicates that women were involved in prayers and they were involved in prophecies which were public exhortations. Secondly, Paul uses nearly the same statement in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. And yet, just a few verses earlier, he had talked about women being involved in prayers and prophecies. So that would seem really inconsistent if Paul meant literally they are not to speak. That's not what he meant. Third, the same word is used in 1 Timothy 2.2, indicating a quiet demeanor. 
So therefore, my conclusion is this. When Paul talks about silence, he's not referring to complete silence. He's referring to the kind of demeanor and behavior that would fit with a spirit of submission. And come on, you know this. I mean, ladies, you know this, don't you? That you could be absolutely silent and still say a lot, right? Right? You, you can be, you can not say a word and communicate a lack of submission. I mean, you, all you have to do is just make a sound like this. Mm, right? That's it. That's all you gotta do. Or just a look. Mm. You know, I, all you, have, you don't have to say a word and that can communicate the very essence of a lack of submission. So silence or uh, complete silence is clearly not in view here. What he's talking about is a quiet demeanor. And that's going to change depending on who's involved, the environment, the discussion, what's going on. Submission is supposed to be the overguiding, the overarching principle. And a quiet demeanor might sometimes look like complete silence. At other times, it might look like being involved in public worship services. And what, what happens here is that every woman's going to have to figure out how to express this, and each situation will require discernment. So if you're hoping for me to give you a list as to how you work this out, I can't. For that matter, if you're a single woman, you also have to figure out how to live this out. And there's lots of scenarios, and I don't know how you figure all of them out. You just got to think and pray those through. What does it look like to be a single woman without a husband in a small group, in an ABF class, in an environment with lots of other people? How do you express submissiveness and a quiet demeanor in that context? That, you got to figure that out. Now, verse 12. Verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather, she is to remain quiet. This verse is directly connected to what Paul has just said in verse 11. And remember, submissiveness was the um, overarching principle, and quietness is the context of how you express it. Now, when we look at verses um, 11 and 12, I see and agree with both Stott and Mounts, who are commentaries, uh, commentators on this passage, that there is a parallelism here. Meaning that there's a structure to how Paul is talking about this that often happens in the Bible where an author uses the same structure to communicate a truth. So he uses a parallelism for comparative purposes. And I think in this text, the phrase, one should learn quietly, is in direct parallel with the word or the phrase to teach. And the concept of being submissive is in direct parallel with what it means to not exercise authority over a man. In other words, from the very get-go of this passage, I see a parallelism that says the overarching principle of this text in verse 11 and 12 is that a woman shouldn't have authority over a man, and then contextually they're going to have to figure out what it means not to teach. So again, the overarching principle is not having authority And the expression of that culturally flexible, depending on time, culture, environment, people, church, is what it means not to teach. So the command is do not exercise authority. The context is not to teach and to remain silent. In other words, as submission expressed the culturally defined silence, so respect for authority defines what kind of teaching would be appropriate. So the underlying principle is that men are to be the ultimate spiritual leaders, and then that would be expressed in a culturally nuanced 
prohibition against particular kinds of teaching. And listen, you already agree with this at some level because we, we have women who are teaching right now your children. And they're teaching. My wife's teaching this very hour. And there's little boys in that class. The question then becomes, so when does that boy become a man? And if I took a survey, you would each begin to decide, no, that's, no, no, there, but not there, not there. So what happens is the minute you started to do that, you've made a culturally informed decision. He's a man at 13. Well, you may think he is. It's actually 15. No, it's 18. When, so when does it, when does it, does it violate this principle of scripture if that's exactly how you interpret it? So all of us do that at a particular level. So there's three words that are important. The first word or the phrase is the, is do not permit. I do not permit. Let's look at these. The word means to allow someone to do what they want to do. So Paul is offering here a correction of a problem that had emerged in the church at Ephesus. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. The next word is the word teach. And this word simply means to instruct. And at first you might think that Paul is saying here that women ought to do no teaching at all. However, that doesn't fit because older women are told in Titus 2 that they are to teach younger women. So it can't mean no teaching at all. For that matter as well, Timothy was taught by his mother and grandmother, even listed in the Bible, um, that, that these women were a part of his teaching. You might say, well, he was a little boy as he was growing up. And that would, might be true. But here's my other test case. And that is that the book of Acts in chapter 18:26 records that Apollos, a great preacher of the truth of God's word, was privately taught by Priscilla, a woman, and Aquila, her husband. So clearly not all teaching is forbidden. The solution comes, I think, in the next word. So I think the next word defines the box. Not to have authority. This word mean plainly means to not have rule over, to not have authority over. Some take this to mean not to have abusive authority, but I'm not convinced that the data supports that conclusion. Now the problem is, is that even the explanation of these words doesn't solve all of the problems. We don't really fully know what Paul means just by these verses, by teaching or authority. He doesn't specifically spell out what kind of authority he has in mind here. But I do think we get a phenomenal clue when you look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Take your Bible and look at it. Just after Paul talks about all of this authority and teaching thing, the next subject that he picks up is the qualifications for an elder. So it just seems that Paul is following this line of thought and the reality of the spiritual authority that Paul has in mind is eldership. So I think that a right understanding of this text would be to see this passage as a prohibition against women serving in a position of ultimate spiritual authority. I don't think this means that women can't ever be in a position of any authority. For instance, I've heard some people say that if a woman becomes president, we need to move to Canada. I'm not moving to Canada if a woman becomes president. That doesn't violate this passage. Or a woman shouldn't be a secretary of state or shouldn't be a vice president of the United States. That's, I, just, I don't see that in the text. To me, what he's talking about here is how a church should conduct itself and that ultimate spiritual authority that there's a very specific place for men because they've been endued with this particular God-given role. So specifically, I see this text identifying that eldership, 
which is the authoritative teaching for a community of believers, is a God-ordained role for qualified men. Now, some of you might say, well, that's, that's kind of exclusive. You're taking half the church and they can't be an elder. I would say, no, no, it's even more exclusive than that because most men aren't even qualified to be an elder. So exclusivity in and of itself is not, to me, a sufficient argument. Eldership is not a wide-open office. Most men aren't qualified either. And yet, at the same time, let me be clear, that I do not think that this command prohibits women from teaching in every context. There are many scenarios where women could and should actively engage in instruction while not violating the spirit of these verses. You know, on a regular basis, our elders have taken time in our meetings to discuss a wide range of theological issues and biblical um, challenges. And about a year and a half ago, we took up this very subject, and we read some books and had uh, folks present papers and summaries of, um, here's one uh, particular way to look at it, here's another, and we wrestled with it and thought about it, prayed it through. And at College Park, the conclusion of those discussions was that we as elders have defined that ultimate spiritual authority is biblically vested in what we call the elder council. And therefore, we believe that this council is biblically prescribed to be comprised of qualified men. And we believe that there's a mandate for men to embrace their spiritual leadership role. And we would argue that when men fail to spiritually lead the home or the church, that we are out of step with God's plan and design, that godly, qualified men should occupy the office of elder in the context of the church. However, that doesn't mean that a woman could never teach. In fact, in mixed settings, when a a woman is under the covering of an elder, when she's not the ultimate spiritual authority, and depending on the context and uh, with a spirit of humility, she may be actively and appropriately involved in teaching. Now, honestly, we've not thought every scenario through as to what that could look like, but let me give you a few examples from my own personal experience. So, So I have personally benefited from the writings of some wonderful, godly women who know the Bible. For instance, Beth Moore. Uh, Kay Arthur, Elise Fitzpatrick, um, Nancy Lee DeMoss. In fact, um, I read Nancy Lee DeMoss's book, The Lies Women Believe, and I loved it. Now, I put a jacket around it, right? And I, so no one saw what I was reading. <laughs> now, I'm not dumb, but I'm just saying that, 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 that book was really helpful. And I gotta tell you, women aren't the only one who believe lies. I mean, hello, men believe lies. And I gotta tell you, a lot of men believe the same lies women believe. This was a helpful book, and I found great spiritual benefit from it. Further, I wouldn't have a problem with a woman being involved in the instruction and training of pastors. I I have often sought the advice and counsel from women on our staff and in our church on a wide range of subjects and topics and been really benefited from their insight and their interpretation of the Scriptures. I could see scenarios in which ABF groups or or small groups, uh, I could see a scenario where women are used in a temporary teaching role. And furthermore, there have been and continue to be women in significant leadership roles, granted non-elder roles within our church. A few few examples would be children's ministry, women's ministry. We have folks representing major ministry partners on our missions council, first-hand ministries, youth ministries, and not the least of which is when we even are in the process of searching for a pastor, we have women who serve on those search teams. That's a, a big responsibility. So for me... 
The nuance of this command and context, the the rubric of seeing this text through this lens, is helpful because it preserves the, the principle of ultimate spiritual authority while at the same time providing some cultural flexibility for what it means to teach. So let me sum up what I'm saying. First, I think this text says that women are to embrace a God-honoring spirit of submission and respect for God-ordained calling of qualified male spiritual leadership. I think God wants women to embrace their role, embrace the attitude, embrace the perspective, and I think there is a unique godliness that is expressed by women who are submissive and who see the importance of a biblically defined group of men who are leading a church. Or in the context of your home, leading your home. Now, secondly, what I'm also saying is that the expression of these principles will take on a cultural dynamic as to what it means for someone to have a quiet demeanor. That quiet demeanor could look like, for you as a woman, could look very different than what it looks like for my wife. You've got to figure out what a quiet demeanor looks like. And as well, what it congregationally means to teach. So what does it mean to teach in the spirit of an ultimate spiritual authority? And so what would be allowed and what wouldn't? I know that this feels a bit semi-permeable, but I think that's what it's supposed to be. That we can't have all of specific answers. We get some great principles, but we also have to just think and use the Spirit of God in the Bible to figure out what it is that we're going to do in the context of our present culture. Now, I think if we've done this well, if we've examined this text well, there ought to be this thing in the back of your head that you think, okay, so where in the world does this come from? I mean, this just, just, just comes out from a bunch of men. Where does this come from? How do you get there? And next we see what Paul bases his command and context teaching on. And um, this is what we find in verses 13 to 14, which is really the basis of this teaching. So Paul now tells us why he is saying this. Look at verse 13. Here's his reason. Here's his justification. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Well, that solves everything, right? <laughs> that just solved all the problems right there. Okay, let's go home. Thanks, Paul. That's great. Okay, what in the world does that mean? That just raises a whole nother set of questions. So let's dig in and figure out what he's saying. So the first thing he says is that Adam was formed first and then Eve. And so what he does here is takes this culturally nuanced command and context um, dynamic and he attaches the significance of this pastoral admonition to creation. He appeals to the very foundation of how the world came to be. So that this authority principle, this idea of submission, is something that God established in the essence of creation. And therefore, by appealing all the way back to creation, Paul is removing the male as ultimate authority holder from a cultural context and planting it firmly on the ground of the creative intent of God. So in effect, he's saying this was and is God's plan. 
This is, by the way, not the only place that he does this, makes this creation argument. Listen to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11, verses 8 to 12. He says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Talking about creation. And then he says, verse 10, That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. So what Paul does here is he takes Genesis 2, both in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians, to define the relationship role between men and women, while distinguishing that there's a difference between them, he also says that there's an interdependency or a complementariness about their relationship. He bases his teaching in verses 11 and 12, on the divine order as expressed in Genesis 2. So Adam was formed first. He takes it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The next phrase is really interesting. It says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, some people suggest that women should not be in authority because they can't be trusted, because they're more easily deceived. However, common sense would just have you know that's simply not the case. Men and women are both equally unable to be fully trusted. As many men have been deceived as women have been deceived. So what in the world is going on in this passage? What is this about? Now, at first glance, you might think that the passage is about Eve because it mentions her so much that Eve was deceived and she became a transgressor. But the passage is actually not about Eve. It's really about Adam. This I found to be fascinating. Eve, think back to the Garden of Eden. Eve became a transgressor by deception. The snake tempted her, and she fell into sin. But Adam, the text says, was not deceived. So what does that say about Adam? You might think it's saying something negative about Eve. It's actually saying something horribly negative about Adam, that the woman was deceived, but Adam wasn't deceived, meaning that she fell because she was deceived, but Adam knew exactly what he was doing. And then, when God comes to the garden to hold them accountable for their sins. If you look at it in Genesis chapter 3, whose name does he call? Adam's. He talks to Adam about the sin that's now entered the garden. He says to him, who told you where you were naked? And then Adam does what men have often done throughout the history of the world, and they try, he did this, the woman who you gave me, right? And from, from that, there's a, there's the thing that transcends culture right there. And in the garden, he says, the woman who you gave me as if to shift the responsibility, but God will have none of that. And at the end of the day, he holds Adam singularly responsible. Is we, Eve responsible? Certainly she is. But Adam is responsible as the representative agent of all creation, which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So what is Paul doing here? He's not slamming on Eve and her deception. He's explaining that Adam fell and was responsible for the effects in the garden. So what is Paul doing? He's linking these roles to both creation and the responsibility that is implicit in the fall. Paul raises the issue not because of weakness in Eve, but rather because of Adam's role as the spiritual representative of the entire human race. So having established it there... 
talking about Adam. I think both of these, the, this verse is primarily about Adam. Now he turns to Eve and we see the God ordained role for women and the hope that's there. It says this in the final verse, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What does this mean? Well, this entire section has been about the roles of men and women. And it makes sense that Paul would carry this theme of roles all the way to the end. That's why, in my view, he ends up using the clearest example of the distinction of roles between men and women. And he uses the illustration of childbearing. I mean, inarguably, there's clearly a distinction. Men, no matter how much you wanted, you could never have this experience. And childbearing is uniquely feminine. And so Paul says, yet they will be saved through childbearing. What does he mean? Well, the word saved doesn't mean that a woman is saved by her works, um, nor does it mean that a single or non-childbearing woman are not saved because they aren't bearing children, nor does it mean, in my view, that you're kept safe in childbirth, as I think the NIV translates it. The word saved can mean more than just simply salvation like a point in time. The word salvation can refer to the totality of one's spiritual life, to the consummation of redemption. It can refer to spiritual wholeness. It can refer to practical godliness. It can refer to one's righteousness in this sense that we are saved and being saved. So it seems to me that when Paul uses this phrase, he's saying that the expression of their godliness will be best expressed through their God-given role, which for women is childbearing. Further, it's justified by the list that's given, the faith and love, holiness and self-control, if they continue in these. He's not talking about a works-based righteousness, but rather he's talking about what it means for women in the context of the God-given role that he's given them to fulfill all of what God intends in terms of godliness and self-control and faith and to see this is the way that God has made things. This is the way that life is. So the hope for women then is not a radical alteration of the divine plan. It's not a radical alteration, but instead a celebration of what God has designed and the roles he has given men and women. The hope is to see men and women as complementary participants in the plan of God and in the body of Christ. All right, finally, here's some pastoral conclusions. I'm so grateful for you um, just patiently laboring with me through this text. I, I really, really hope that something has been helpful today so you understand the passage a little better. I'm sure that I haven't answered all of your questions. I hope at least I've answered a few. So in conclusion, let me just draw two, con- two conclusions and two pastoral admonitions. They're these. The first is this. Friends, men and women are equal before God as image bearers, as guilty parties, and as children of God. There's an equality among us. Yet there are differences that should be recognized. These differences should be guarded. These differences should be celebrated. Both men and women have been given God-given roles, and we ought to embrace the full ramifications of what this means. So we need to celebrate that there is a complementary difference in the midst of all that we have in common. That means, men, God calls you to be a spiritual leader in your home. 
and you will not be able to have the excuse of, well, she's like this, and this is like this, and this is like that, and I'm not like this. And you're gonna, That didn't work for Adam, it didn't work in the garden, it won't work for you. You are going to be held accountable for the spiritual environment of your home, regardless of whether or not you think that you're a spiritual leader or not. God holds you accountable as the spiritual leader. In the same respect that God holds our elders accountable for the leadership of this church. And women, I would encourage you to be godly, submissive wives and to use your submissiveness for the glory of God in lots of overt and direct and proactive expressions. And when men are godly leaders and when women are godly, submissive wives, there's something beautiful that happens in culture and in the church. Secondly, I think we need to think carefully and considerately through how we live this out since we would never want to communicate that men are somehow superior or women somehow inferior. So while we believe that eldership is a divinely given role for men, it's equally important to think through what significant, valuable, and meaningful roles and responsibilities should be given to women. To realize that God has prescribed some things here But he hasn't prescribed everything. And we ought to really value the gifts and abilities that God has given us. So the church of Jesus Christ has been comprised of men and women from the very beginning. But more than just being made up of men and women, the church needs both men and women in every way that God intended. So the church of Jesus Christ needs, in fact, this church, College Park Church, needs men and women who faithfully and joyfully serve one another in the church of Jesus Christ, and that together and in wonderfully biblical, complementary ways, we are able to guard the truth that leads to life together. That's what God calls us to do as men and as women for His glory and our good. So, Father, thank you that you give us passages like this that make us work and work hard to understand what's happening here and beyond the technical nature of what is in this text. I pray today for men and women who need to live out the fully orbed reality of their relationship with you, for robust spiritual leaders who shepherd the home in so many ways, for women who follow their husband's lead and yet use their full gifts to the glory of your name and under the covering of their husband. So help us to know how to live this out. We, we want to be the kind of people who are attentive and obedient to your word. And so we are here today asking for your spirit to speak to us about what individually, as men and as women, we need to do to live this passage out in our church. So we love you, and we are so thankful for the Word of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.